You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. 3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boon people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay respect to elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Wednesday Breakfast. It's the 20th of December, and it's our last live show of 2023. I can't quite believe how quickly Christmas has come around. Today, I am joined in the studio by Grace, Sonia, and Zoe, and we've got Michaela here on the panel. This is Sonia's first broadcast today with 3CR, which is really exciting. How's everybody doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. Nice to be here, Pippa. I'm good too. I'm I'm pumped for the show today. Um, and yeah, first breakfast show for you, Sonia, right? But you've... First in quite your... a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cool. It's exciting. And I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me on this morning as well. Looking forward to seeing what the team has cooked up for this morning's breakfast. Yeah. No, fantastic. So in today's broadcast, we're going to be airing some of our favourite interviews from this year for the first couple of segments. So you can expect to hear Grace Tan's interview with Chelsea Watego about the Senate inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women, as well as an interview from Claudia Craig speaking to Matt Grednoff on income inequality. Sonia also caught up with trans rights activist Talaga to gain some insights into the trans arrests in Malaysia. And then Sonia will be closing off the show with a discussion on the murder of Palestinian journalists. So it should be a really interesting show today, but first we'll get started with the news headlines. Thanks, Pippa. Human Rights Watch said in a statement issued on Monday that Israel is deliberately depriving Palestinians of access to food, water and other basic necessities. The use of hunger against the civilian population is a war crime, the NGO stated, calling for world leaders to act. The aftermath of Cyclone Jasper has left the far north of Queensland submerged with widespread floods. Through the severe weather warnings, though the severe weather warnings have now been lifted, authorities have advised that a significant risk remains. Record-breaking rainfall, power outages for 13,000 buildings and ongoing rescues mark the crisis. Remote communities like Wujal Wujal are facing evacuation difficulties due to the weather changes. Cairns Airport currently remains closed with small planes being underwater and life-threatening flash flooding warnings persisting. Emergency funding has been activated as the Australian Defence AIDS recovery efforts. At this time, authorities have urged caution and readiness for any potential dangers. And renewed Israeli bombing at Al Shifa Hospital on Monday has murdered 26 Palestinians while shipping giants paused routes through the Red Sea due to fear of being attacked by Yemen's Houthis. 
Al-Shifa Hospital, Gaza's largest medical complex, was bombarded by Israelis last month and is now barely functioning. Despite these attacks, Al-Shifa Hospital is still a shelter for families displaced by Israeli military. And that brings us to the end of the news headlines. We'll be back after a community service announcement. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children aged three and four can access 15 hours per week of free kinder. Kinder programs provide culturally safe places for children and families and are led by qualified teachers. Enroll for 2024. Speak with your preferred kinder service or local council today about how to register for a place. Koori kids shine at kindergarten. Find out more at vic.gov.au forward slash kinder. Authorised by the Victorian Government Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. You know, there's people, like you said, have been on casual for seven years. Well, it's supposed to be casual employment. People want full-time jobs. They don't want to be sitting there casual, not knowing they're going to get any any days, any leave or whatsoever. Especially, you look at all the casuals in the, our industry at the moment, they're sitting home. You know, people want full-time employment and they, sh- they should be entitled to That's full-time right. employment. And look at all the people who were used and abused as casuals in the aged care sector and all the problems that are facing people now and all the deaths that are following. In the meatworks, a lot of that's casuals, labour hire, you know, we've got blokes travelling around, you know. We want full-time positions and, you know, that's... And people want it. We want to be full-time employed. You want to have your Christmas holidays. You want to have time with your family. But when you're a casual, you get none of that. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. CR gives space to voices excluded from mainstream media, to people who want to be heard. And to help keep 3CR on the air, you need to donate and subscribe. Call 9419 8377 or online at 3cr.org.au. We're now going to go straight to our first interview segment of the broadcast. The first story does come with a trigger warning. This will be discussing stories of violence and murder against Indigenous women. Some viewers may find this content distressing to listen to, so please be aware that this interview will be playing for the next 15 minutes. The following interview aired on Wednesday breakfast on the 5th of April this year. Grace Tan interviewed Chelsea Watego about the Senate inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women. Please note this upcoming segment discusses stories of violence and murder against Indigenous women. If this isn't your cup of tea right now, you may wish to tune out for the next 15 minutes or choose to listen back to the podcast at the time of your choosing. So please uh, take care. So now I'll be speaking to Mununjali and South Sea Islander women, Chelsea Wadago, Professor of Indigenous Health and Executive Director of Karima Institute, at Queensland University of Technology regarding the Senate inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women put out last year. Uh, good morning, Chelsea. Good morning, Grace. Good morning. So to start, uh, could we just first get to know about what has happened with this inquiry? How did it start, basically? Yeah, look, I haven't been involved um, directly in the inquiry itself. Um, I have been involved in providing an expert report with my colleagues around um, a coronal inquest in 
to a murdered Aboriginal woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's from that work uh, that we made a submission to the inquiry, um, which uh, was announced last year, um, mm-hmm. but for some strange reason has been met with uh, so much silence. Mm. I see. And... Oh, what what is usually meant to happen when an inquiry is is established? Well, I mean, you would think it would bring attention um, okay. uh, uh, to an issue of significance, um, you know, involving public consultation and exposure. And what we've found through this process is there is a, a, a lack of media attention to the inquiry itself. It is difficult to find out when public hearings are being held. Um, as someone who has made a submission to the inquiry, we have been chasing up, following up to see if there are hearings in here in the state of Queensland. Um, and it, it, it just lies in stark contrast to other um, inquiries, Senate inquiries. We've had a recent uh, Queensland government inquiry to police responses to uh, family violence, which you know, generated hundreds of media publications mm. about police misogyny and racism. Yet we find just 14 news reports relating to this uh, Senate inquiry um, and and very little attention. And I guess our argument is, is that this response um, to the, the current Senate inquiry lies at the heart of a problem of missing and murdered Indigenous women in that people don't care and there is a silence um, that surrounds violence against Indigenous women mm. um, that creates this culture of impunity that subjects um, us to such high rates of violence in the first place. Mm, I see. And then um, with with the submission to the inquiry that uh, that was made, uh, what was this inquiry about? What, basically, yeah, what was it? So the Senate inquiry was set up to examine... Um, the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women. And in yep. Canada, there has uh, been an inquiry undertaken that was far more substantial than what, what we're, what's happening here. Um, but the current Senate inquiry has borrowed some of the terms of reference from that Canadian inquiry, um, but has not engaged in the same methodology. And it's really been quite confusing. Um, and, and, I, and I have to say, disappointing. Mm. Um, the, the lack of response, the lack of interest mirrors um, the response from coronal inquests into missing and murdered Aboriginal women. It mirrors the police response when loved ones report um, uh, Indigenous women missing. Um, there's just inaction. Um, mm. Yep, definitely. And um, so when this inquiry was submitted and then after that... Uh, this obviously highlights that missing and murdered indigenous indigenous women, girls, and giant diverse people. Um, uh, it, it is meant to say that they're actually never just simply missing. They did not just vanish from their homes, families, and country. They actually um, are violently disappeared. So, uh, what c- could you elaborate on? What what did you mean by that? What was the other? Yeah, I mean. I want to acknowledge the work of Amy McGuire, whose PhD research has, has, has looked at this specifically. Um, what our argument is, is that um, Indigenous women are not missing, they are murdered. Mm-hmm. And those that sit in the category of missing, <clears throat> we're finding a pattern um, where they uh, are deemed missing because there is a missing white perpetrator. 
So this nation is interested in violence against Indigenous women when there is the blackmail perpetrator. Um, and when there are um, white male perpetrators, uh, we note that the police are inactive um, and don't follow through. We note that the uh, media attention also um, mirrors the response of police. Um, and, and this is the way in which Indigenous women's bodies are politicised and brutalised in all kinds of sort of ways, um, that the violence that we are subject to, um, uh, the only interest in that is when it's um, at the hands of black men, not from strangers on the street or the hands of the state. Mm. And we're trying to break that silence because these women just did not vanish into thin air. Yep. And then because of all this inaction that's happening, there's obviously there's been just really rarely any accountability for the violence against Indigenous women. Why, why, why do you think they've been, they're being framed this way? Why, why is this silence against this violence? Well, what we found in um, one of the investigations that we were commissioned to undertake, yeah. um, we found that the police attached um, uh, a sense of criminality to Indigenous uh, uh, female victims, even though it had nothing to do with the violence that they suffered. And so we're always being somehow complicit in the violence that we experience. Um, and um, even in the police reporting around um, uh, missing and murdered uh, women, we found no category on the police report for... Um, violence that happens uh, against women from strangers on the street. And in this place, um, Indigenous women in public spaces are subjected to all forms of violence. But it seems there is an imbalance uh, around the attention here in that there's only an interest in that in the domestic sphere. Um, yet we know, and there have been numerous cases where Indigenous women have been subject to violence um, from those that they're not in a relationship with. And we need to, we need to um, do more in understanding that. And it traces itself back to the frontier days where Indigenous women were subject to all kinds of physical and sexual violence. And there was never any accountability for that. Mm, yep, definitely. And then, uh, yeah, because of all these things, of, the, of all these inaction, uh, Indigenous women continue to suffer from the violence and possibly un, un, um, unpublicised uh, attention towards the things that are happening towards them. And we've seen, like, you know, some of the, the persons of interest mm. uh, lay claim to the fact that apparently Indigenous women just go walk about, they just disappear. And that's not mm. true. And we've got countless cases of Indigenous families pleading with the police to investigate their disappearance mm. um, and, and being met with um, silence and inaction. And so the police also need to be held accountable for not doing their job in protecting and investigating the violence that Indigenous women experience. And, you know, sadly the police themselves are perpetrators of violence against Indigenous women at record rate. Mm, yeah. And then, and obviously, this this isn't just also about um, the attention that needs to be brought upon from the media, but also pe uh, feminists and people who are 
advocating for women's rights. There's just just there's just not much being talked about from from them, even though there's at least 315 Aboriginal women that have been murdered. Yeah, there's where, where's all those rallies and all the advocacy for this for all these I mean, Ab- Aboriginal women? Yeah, I mean, even just a few weeks ago, seeing Senator Lydia Thorpe being thrown to the ground by the police. Mm. Um, the lack of care yeah. for her. Um, you know, this is all on the spectrum, this indifference to the violence that Indigenous women experience. And, you know, um, <clears throat> that violence was so public, so visible. We all saw it from various angles. Yet there was very little care and concern for her as an Indigenous woman. Um, and this is the, the exact thing that we're speaking about and drawing attention to. Mm, definitely. And so, yeah, I, now that just all comes about breaking the, breaking the silence. And I think what, 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 is the, what is the best thing and do you want our listeners to know about for, regarding, regarding this inquiry? And what, what do you want the media to know? Um, look, I think put the pressure on, um, listen to the stories and amplify the stories because in amidst this silence, Indigenous women and their families have not been silent. Um, have been turning up, uh, you know, insisting on coronal inquiries, fighting for coronal inquiries to get answers, have been screaming outside uh, coroner's courts, appealing for people to care, appealing for answers for their loved ones. Um, so we have a responsibility to listen to Indigenous women um, who, are, who are doing the work right now, who are testifying to the violence of this place. We need to put pressure on the Senate inquiry to do better um, and to invest more in, in hearing the stories of Indigenous women across the country. Um, and, I mean, we just need people to care, to care about Indigenous women, that we belong to the category of human and that we are worth fighting for, we're worth caring for. Um, we know that we are, but right now this this nation is showing itself mm. in the most uh, disappointing of ways. Yeah, definitely. And so, sorry, um, uh, just healthy. Just one more question before we uh, unfortunately don't have much time left. Uh, so obviously, I, um, I actually couldn't really get a hold of Amy McQuire. Um So that's so. Um, but obviously, I'm also really honored just to be here talking uh, with you about uh, about this very important topic. So there was this uh, uh, her work on the the presents a uh, presenting that she mentioned yeah. about. So, uh, is it okay if you could actually just um, yeah elaborate a bit more on that? I can do my best. I'm on her supervisory team. Um, uh, Amy's work, um, you know, um, is just really, really powerful. And um, she's extended the, this method of presencing. Um, and it's about telling the full story of Indigenous women's lives, not just reducing them to the wounds that they suffered. And it's not an attempt to humanise, to appeal to whiteness. Um, but to honour their lives, even in death. And, um, and, and what's, what's amazing about Amy's work, she's critiqued her own previous reporting, um, revisited her own stories and, and telling them in a different kind of way. And it's led her um, not just to report on these stories and, and, and connect with families, but to sit in coronal inquests and bear witness 
and, and amplify their stories. Um, so it's definitely worth checking out Amy Maguire's uh, Substack, um, where she's told a number of these stories. And through this present thing, she's also, um, you know, theorised about what justice looks like in the absence of a perpetrator being held accountable. And the most powerful example of that is um, in the storytelling of Annie Queenie Hart, who was murdered uh, by a white man in Rockhampton um, and was never allowed to be brought home um, because during that time um, uh, she, she was refused. Um, and in the course of telling Annie Queenie's story, um, she uh, was, met, was able to crowdfund within 24 hours the money to, to bring her home to Sherbrooke um, so the family could, could lay her to rest. Um, and, you know, there was no one held accountable for her death, but she was returned home. And it's, you know, this is the power of presencing um, in life and in death and honouring Indigenous women in life and in death. Mm. Yep. All right. Thank, thank you so much, Chelsea. It was re- it's just been really great speaking to you about this. And it, you're, it's just talking about such an important topic is is just really broaden our broaden our knowledge and what we need to know about this inquiry and that this definitely needs to be brought so much more on the media. Thank you so much for having me and, and drawing attention to this issue. Thank you, Chelsea. That was Munjali and South Sea Islander women, Chelsea Watergo, Professor of Indigenous Health and Executive Director of Karma Institute at Queensland University of Technology, about the silence on the Senate inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women put out last year. And I think this definitely needs to be put out more in the media. That was a really interesting interview from Grace Tan there. Next, we're going to be playing a song by Julia Boutros, This newly released song is one of the old Palestinian songs. Its tone is similar to a mother's lullaby. The song is called Yama Mu'el al-Hawa, Palestinian Heritage, O Mother Woe to Our Life and Day. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast with Pippa, Sonia, Grace and Michele. Oh, <laughs> 
Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMAR. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbōhina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm State Library this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast and you just heard the song Yama Mawel Al-Hawa by Julia Botrus. And we're now going to hear an interview uh, with Claudia Craig and Matt Grudnoff, who is a senior economist at the Australia Institute. Um, And this interview first aired on the 19th of March this year. Last week, an Australia Institute report on economic equity rubbed salt in the wounds of Australians suffering under oppressive cost of living pressures and real wage stagnation. The report was titled Inequality on Steroids, Distribution of Economic Growth in Australia. It made two astounding assertions. First, in the 10-year period before the pandemic, only 7% of Australia's economic wealth growth ended up in the pockets of the majority of Australians. And where did the rest go? You guessed it, to the top 10% of income earners. 
here to explain these findings and shed some light on why wealth distribution has become just so bad is Senior Economist at the Australia Institute and co-author of the report, Matt Gradnoff. Welcome to Breakfast, Matt. Thanks for having me. The results of this report are truly staggering. Were you shocked yourself at the findings? Um, I was certainly shocked. Um, I don't think we... I was surprised. And, and to be honest, I don't think most people would be surprised by these results. I think if you ask people since, you know, 2008, since the GFC, have you felt that you've gotten ahead? I think a lot of people would say no. Um, I think that stagnant wages um, and and the fact that, that, you know, we've had the recent massive increase in prices, so the real wages, the amount of stuff you can buy has gone backwards. I think most people feel that they're either just keeping their head, their head above water or in some cases not even that. So can we break down some of these findings? And 90% of income earners receiving only 7% of the country's wealth growth in the period 2009 to 2019. That's nearly everyone receiving almost nothing. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, exactly right. Um, Basically, what we looked at was um, real per adult economic growth. So real means that we account for inflation. We take out inflation. So your income might be growing. But if uh, the price of everything you're buying is also growing, you're not necessarily ahead. And the per adult is to account for population. So economic growth for the whole country might be growing, but that could just be because the population's getting bigger and per capita, you're not actually getting ahead. So this is the real per capita economic growth, the kind of economic growth that you feel, an increase in your living standards. So we looked at basically what happened to people's living standards, and we found that, um, as you said, almost all of that went to the top 10%, and the rest of us, 90% of the population, got almost none of that. And what sort of an income threshold are we talking about when you refer to the bottom 90% of income earners? So to be in the top 10%, you've got to be earning about 140000 135000 around that sort of level a year or more. That will put you in the top 10%. So we're talking about people on substantial income. And can you explain why the distribution is so skewed in favour of wealthy people and leaves almost well, I- everyone else backpedalling? Yeah, I think this is a story of profits and wages. So if we think back over (coughs) since the GFC, uh, while wages have been definitely stagnant um, uh, and very, very low, and and real wages, when we account for inflation, have almost not moved at all, over that same period, profits have continued to grow, particularly profits from large businesses. And those large businesses are mostly owned by people in the top 10%. So if you get most of your income or a substantial, almost all of your income from wages, you haven't done particularly well since the GFC. But if um, a substantial part of your income came from profit, from owning shares or owning businesses, um, then you have um, had a decent increase in income. And so I think really it's that story of, of uh, businesses are doing well, um, but workers are not. So if our overall economic growth is not being distributed to the general population, are Australians being sold a lie by politicians who promote policies on the basis of their economic growth value? Yeah, well, that's the big problem, isn't it? So we're always told that the, the objective is to grow the pie, to make it bigger so that we all benefit. But the assumption is that we all benefit. If the pie is growing but um, the rest of us aren't doing well, um, then there's no reason for us to want the pie to grow. Um, if we want to all be a part of, uh, of the Australian economy, if we all want to do well out of it, we all want to work together, then 
uh, more of this growth has to go to the rest of the population um, in order to, to induce us all to want to do this. We'll come back to uh, how we get to that point in a moment. But firstly, I just wanted to um, ask you about uh, Australia's history because we haven't always had such an extreme uh, situation in terms of wealth inequality and distribution. Uh, in the 50s to 60s, nearly all of the countries. Uh, real economic growth was was shared and enjoyed by the bottom ninety percent of adult income earners. So, what was happening then to uh, to give that result? Yeah, we we looked at we didn't just look at the last ten years. We looked at it since basically nineteen fifty, and we found this massive change um, before about the nineteen eighties. Um, we, we we saw a situation where, as you said. Growth was shared fairly evenly. The top 10% got about 10% of the economic growth and the rest of us got 90%. But things then changed in the 90s, um, in, the, in sort of between about, uh, during, during, sorry, uh, during the 80s, things changed uh, where the, 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 the distribution was about um, 50-50. That is, the top 10% got half of all economic growth and the 90% got about half. And I think what changed at that time was that neoliberal economics came into its own, um, in particular ideas like trickle-down economics, where if you, if you make the rich richer, um, then more will flow down to everybody else. And I think that's what's actually changed. We had a change where uh, the, the idea of policy was to, to help business grow um, and give everything to business and, and then allow business to take care of workers. Um, and I think that's why we've seen that change um, in, in the distribution of economic growth, that, that, that really it's gone to businesses um, uh, and, and the owners of those businesses, the households who own those businesses, um, and workers just haven't done as well. And you compared Australia's position to uh, other countries over the same period, and we were significantly... Uh, more unjust in the way we distributed wealth through that uh, most recent 10-year period. Does that mean that what Australia was doing in terms of policy uh, was particularly skewed to uh, company owners and profit makers compared to other countries? Yeah, so if we look at other comparable countries and we compared um, countries and country groups like the European Union, so the European Union, Canada... Um, the US, the UK, countries like that, we found that they were all more likely, um, the top 10% was more likely to take a very large chunk of the growth. So at least half of the economic growth for all of those went to just the top 10%. But Australia was by far the worst. Um, none of the other countries had more than 90% going to the top 10%. And it's a great question as to what has happened in Australia. Um, why is it that, that in particular in Australia, it has been particularly bad? And I think it has to do with our industrial relations laws. Um, in particular, Australia has particularly strict industrial relations laws that are making it very, very hard for workers to be able to get pay rises. The, the prevalence of this kind of gig economy work, sham contracting, much more casualised, part-time sort of work, um, where, work where, where people don't have access to sick pay, they don't have access to annual leave, they don't even necessarily know next week how many hours they're going to work. If, if you're in these kind of precarious work situations, it becomes a lot harder to go in 
and talk to your boss and, and get a pay rise if you're not sure, if your boss can basically just cut your hours next week. So I think these kind of policies are the policies that are making it really hard for workers to get pay rises. And, and because they can't get those pay rises, what we're seeing is, is workers are not getting ahead and profits are growing ever faster. Mm, and we're seeing this particularly playing out in the um, university uh, employment sector at the moment. And employment, unemployment is very low at the moment. So in theory, that should place workers in a stronger position to seek real wage increases. But if I hear you correctly, what you're saying is the, the casualisation of a lot of our workforce means that that bargaining power just isn't there. Is that right? Exactly right. So this is the big conundrum. Um, we're constantly told that the key to higher wages is um, lower unemployment. That is, if there's a real scarcity of workers, then businesses will be forced to pay higher wages. Um, you know, we're told that the unemployment rate or the, unemployment, the official unemployment rate is as low as it has been in 40 years. But, you know, if you go back to the 70s, which was what 40 years was, 40 years ago or the early 80s, and you ask people, well, what was the, um, what was the, the labour market like then, and they will tell you it was very, very different um, and that wages were rising a lot faster back in those that period than they are today. And again, I think that what's happened is, is our industrial relations system has so radically changed over the last 40 years away from workers towards businesses that even with this kind of 40-year low in unemployment, even... In the, when those conditions exist, wages still aren't growing um, particularly quickly and certainly not faster than inflation at the moment. And so w there seems to be a break between low unemployment and higher wages um, that's happened in Australia. So apart from the industrial relations situation, what are the other areas that potentially could, uh, you know, see a reversal of this situation? What, what, what other changes would you uh, see possible? Well, I think that um, in particular, if we can't change it at, at, at that kind of business level about between the relationship between workers and businesses, um, then, then the government needs to step in um, and um, start to redistribute itself. So if the government were to step in and start applying things like super profits taxes, for example, on businesses that are making extraordinary large profits, like in the energy industry at the moment... Um, and then redistribute that to the people who need it. But um, I think that's kind of, uh, while those uh, policies are excellent um, and we should implement them, I think at the, the very base what we need to do is we need to work out why it is that workers can't um, get real wage rises with 40-year lows in, in unemployment. Um, and, and there needs to be some change in the industrial relations laws um, and, and a change in, in how we view work. When, when, when we talk about, politicians often talk about, well, you know, my, my main focus is creating more jobs. People think of jobs as kind of full-time, um, permanent, stable things where I can, you know, get a loan for a house um, and, and raise a family and, and, and basically get ahead in life. But the kind of jobs that are being offered are not those kind of jobs. So there's, there's this disconnect between what um, people think um, of, of as jobs when, that, when, when politicians are talking about, well, jobs is the most important focus and what's actually being offered. And, 
and that gap is, is a real problem. So what's the response been from the government to the report? Um, well, the report has done exceedingly well. Um, it's been across the media. Um, and um, I think that there is a focus at the moment, particularly from um, the current government, um, on industrial relations laws. We've seen some changes last year that went through Parliament. Um, and there's talk that there'll be another round of changes, particularly around precarious work. Um, and I really encourage the government to look at that precarious work stuff um, and, and look at how we can make jobs uh, more secure um, and, and, and enable workers to be able to, uh, to, to, to bargain with um, employers um, and able to get those higher wages. Because at the moment, all of the benefits of economic growth are really just flowing to business owners and a small group within our society. And that's very unhealthy for our society um, socially. But even if you're not concerned about the social aspect, it's very bad for the economy. Uh, what um, the World Bank, IMF and OECD have found is that economies that um, distribute their uh, economic growth more fairly um, grow faster than economies that uh, distribute their their economic growth to only a small group. So if we want a faster growing economy, uh, well, we want everybody to benefit from that growth. But if everybody benefits from that growth, then the economy will grow faster. So it's a virtual circle if we can, a virtuous circle if we can basically um, try and distribute that economic growth more fairly. Thank you very much for your time. Um, yeah, that's a really excellent uh, overview of where we'd like to be. And uh, let's uh, watch this space and hopefully talk to you again uh, with a better outlook. Yeah, hopefully. Thank you very much. And that was Matt Grudnoff, Senior Economist at the Australia Institute and co-author with David Richardson of the report Inequality on Steroids, Distribution of Economic Growth in Australia. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast and that was Matt Grudnoff speaking to Claudia Craig. Really, really interesting interview that um, is is still incredibly relevant. Um, that one was from back in, back in March this year. Um, we're now going to go to a song, um, Treaty, the Redfern Remix by Yothu Yindi and Gavin Campbell.
This land was never given up. This land was never bought and sold. The planting of the Union Jack never changed our law at all. Now the rivers run their course, separated for so long. I'm dreaming of a brighter day when the waters will be one. That was Yothu Yindi and Gavin Campbell with Treaty Now, the Redfin remix. Um, at the start of December, five trans women were arrested in Malaysia, which is a country ranked by the Global Trans Rights Index as the second worst place in the world after Guyana to be trans. Video footage of police kicking and beating up one of the women was shared on social media. I spoke with trans right activist Tilaga from the group Justice for Sisters to understand what happened. Thank you, Tilaga, for joining us this morning. I'd first like to ask you to tell us a bit about the legal and social environment that trans people in Malaysia face. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Sonia. Um, so in Malaysia, LGBT people are criminalized at the federal level and at the state level. And at the state level, the criminalization happens through state Sharia laws. 
Um, so at the federal level, Malaysia has inherited British colonial law, uh, Section 377A and B, which criminalize consensual carnal intercourse between uh, consenting adults, right? It's a gender-neutral law. It applies to cisgender heterosexual people and also it applies to trans people. At the state Sharia level, um, there are at least 52 state Sharia uh, laws that criminalize LGBT people as a whole. And these laws include sexual relations between men, uh, musahaka, sexual relations between women. And in 14, in all 14 uh, jurisdictions, there are laws criminalizing trans women on the basis of their gender expression. And I think in at least five uh, states, these laws criminalize uh, trans men and trans masculine identities based on their gender expression. And what is also important for me to point out is that in a context where um, these laws are applied in a binary sense, um, you know, all of these liwat, musahaka, and all these uh, sex against the order of nature provisions are applied on trans people uh, as well, right? Um, and of course, over the years, we have seen increasing anti-LGBT sentiments. From the state, we have seen, you know, a range of anti-LGBT um, efforts um, this includes state-sponsored conversion practices, censorship, uh, introduction of like different forms of guidelines to regulate um, LGBT performers or allies, um, and, and a number of other efforts. Thanks. And could you tell me a bit about the current operations and what is happening at the moment that brought some of this to our attention? Um, I think about two weeks ago, there was a raid that took place um, in Pera. Um, where a group of trans women were arrested through an operation called uh, Ops Chaga Pondan. Uh, Pondan is a pejorative term that is used against trans women and gay men. Um, and basically, Ops um, Chaga Pondan translates as operation to curb trans women or, and or gay men. Um, and through this raid, I think the that there were a lot of problematic things. Of course, the rate in and of itself is problematic, uh, and it's a gross violation of human rights. Well, the rate was documented and uploaded on uh, Facebook and other social media platforms. And through the video, we could see how um, the state officials during the raid are physically attacking or physically assaulting or kicking one of the trans women, and that was uh, uploaded on social media platforms. And and this just goes to show the kind of impunity that we are seeing in Malaysia against, in terms of violence against uh, trans people and LGBT people in general, right? The fact that state officials feel comfortable putting up um, such videos on social media speaks to uh, a bigger problem, right? So I, I think there were many layers of issues with the rate. One, the fact that the rate was conducted and it was called um, an operation to curb trans women and all gay men. Um, and also um, how then, and I guess during the rate, there were violence that was involved that was recorded and uploaded on uh, social media platforms. Um, yeah, so I think these are some problematic things with the uh, rate, yeah. And you also mentioned a bit about the media coverage in the press release that Justice for Sisters put out. Yes, um, we were also really concerned about the way in which that the media covered the news. Uh, by and large, the media um, 
repeated the term uh, Obstiga Pondan without uh, being critical of the the operation in and of itself, uh, and also we didn't see any media questioning the um, the state officials for one uploading this the raid um, on social media, and also nobody questioned the uh, state officials uh, for violating and physically assaulting um, uh, these trans women during the course of the raid, right? The use of these pejorative terms, especially in the Malay me- Malay language media, is something that we see often. Um, and you know, in the Malay media, I think we see that a lot of pejorative terms are used uh, to describe and refer to LGBT people. Um, so definitely, this um, adds to our concern around like um, how the anti-LGBT sentiments in Malaysia are increasing and. Some of these things are amplified by uh, the media uh, outlets. Yeah, Coming from an Australian perspective, we often tend to see these issues, particularly in the West, as defined in a very sort of Eurocentric way by an arrow of progress. So from a regressive past of transphobia to a more rainbow-coloured, rights-based future. How does Malaysia fit into this narrative? I think religion... In Malaysia, um, religion and culture are central to the um, anti-LGBT sentiments that we see here, right? And together with that, I think it's also important to note that a lot of the panic that we see in Malaysia and in in many other countries um, are a result of the progress that they see in um, other countries, right? And and this can be not just in Western countries, but also like, for example, in Thailand, when, you know, Pride took place in Thailand, um, a lot of Malaysian people who were there at that time were posting things on social media saying that, oh, we can never let this happen in Malaysia, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there is a sense of um, anxiety uh, by the, uh, especially among ethno-religious uh, majority uh, communities, right? right? And, and in this context would be the Malay Muslim community, um, in the sense that they feel that, you know, these changes that they're seeing around them are a threat to their uh, understanding of the world, or it is a threat to their way of uh, life or it's a threat to uh, their religious belief or cultural belief, etc. And I think this is very much reflected in some of the research that we are seeing, right? Because in Malaysia, I think the primary uh, concern is not so much so that LGBT people or trans people are like, um, um, you know, have a mental illness and and, and these medicalized and pathologized uh, uh, way of thinking, right? But it's really about the fact that, you know, LGBT people are sinners and are, again, are transgressing uh, the uh, local cultures and customs and things like that. Um, So that uh, feels like the main uh, area of concern for for the people. And I think this is, of course, then... um, flamed by, you know, politicians and the media and, you know, uh, and others, right? Um, And this really just then increases their anxiety about their position um, in the world and in the country. 
Um, but at the same time, I think like, um, you know, the fact that um, people feel that LGBT people are sinners um, or like a transgressing culture and uh, not part of society, etc. Uh, these are all forms of misinformation and disinformation, right? Uh, and this is the, the same to me as like somebody thinking that climate change is like, oh, the c climate disruption uh, is not caused by human behavior. It's something that, you know, is just happening because um, world is changing or it's taking its natural course. A at the end of the day, you know, when people have these anti-LGBT views or like this very hostile views against LGBT people, these are also grounded in the fact that there is a lack of understanding of, of diversity and the, a lack of understanding of what sexual orientation, gender identity, gender uh, expression are, right? Mm -hmm. So I think on one hand, it's definitely, uh, while we understand that uh, religion and culture are central to uh, some of the heightened anxiety that we see, it's also not lost on us that some of the uh, pushback that and the hostility that we see um, are also caused by misinformation, disinformation, um, and also lack of understanding of diversity and soji in general, right? And I think um, in a country like Malaysia, where we see uh, a very a lack of religious plurality, diverse. So, yeah, sorry. Sorry, could you just mean explain what you mean by religious plurality? Because Malaysia is quite famous for having lots of different religions and cultures within it. Yeah, I think like while Malaysia is like known for being diverse, uh, diverse ethnically and and I guess also in terms of religion, but you know when it comes to the laws and policies in Malaysia, we see that the construct of uh, Islam or the state-sanctioned Islam is still quite monolithic, right? Yeah. Where um, other minority sects are not allowed to practice their religion freely, um, even though they fall within the, I, I guess, even though they fall within the uh, within Islam, right? Increasingly, as well, we see restrictions of like religious practices by other uh, religious minorities, right? Like, I think when uh, just recently there was a lot of conversation around whether Christmas can be written on cakes, right? So I I, I do think that um, the fact that um, the religious discourse in Malaysia is quite limited and quite monolithic, and that also contributes to the way in which people understand that people understand and appreciate, you know, soji diversity, right, or uh, LGBTIQ people. Because in this sort of context, it is very uh, challenging for people to uh, provide counter-narratives to the Sodom and Gomorrah story, for example. Even though we know that the Sodom and Gomorrah story has uh, multiple interpretations, and we know now that it's about theft and, like, inhospitality and all these other sexual violence and all these different things, but, you know, the fact that there is no space to have these conversation and this um, religious dialogues, I think, um, is, is central to the increasing anti-LGBT sentiments that we see in Malaysia. Great. I'd just like to ask one last question. What could listeners yeah. do to show actual allyship with the LGBTIQ community in Malaysia? I think there are many things that folks can do like for one maybe engage with like lgbt groups in malaysia to see how they can like support um the activism in malaysia meaningfully because in a context like malaysia where the hostility is constantly increasing 
you know, I think being tactical is important, right? And being strategic is important because when we do our social media analysis and like when we do our social media observations, the one of the main things that we keep seeing uh, as a, and this is a recurring pattern, is that the general assumption is that LGBT people are too loud, that we are constantly demanding for things and like we are constantly um, being in people's faces and things like that. Given that this is the public perception of like LGBT activists and LGBT activism, it is wise to be a bit prudent in terms of like how we approach the the subject matter, right? So that it doesn't reinforce the stereotypes that people already have. But at the same time, of course, it is still important to be visible. It is still important to speak out against injustices, etc. But my point is... Um, to engage with like LGBT groups, and you can find many of these LGBT groups online, um, and engage them to see how you could like work with them meaningfully uh, to bring about change, right? And and so that it also doesn't become counterproductive to the strategies uh, and and the work that folks are doing. It is still important to like um, to share information and also to um, speak up against injustices and discrimination. I also want to add that given the fact that in Malaysia, a lot of the issues that we are dealing with has an uh, Islamic uh, or a religious uh, intersection, uh, it is important that when we talk about these issues uh, and or when we talk about LGBT issues that uh, we do not uh, intentionally or unintentionally increase Islamophobia. And I think that is a tension that, you know, a lot of us from post-colonial countries have to deal with. But I think it is important to find the balance of like talking about so, um, human rights of LGBT people while at the same time not increasing Islamophobia. Great. Thank you very much for your time this morning. And um, perhaps we'll have you on the show another time. Thanks, Talaga. That was Malaysian trans rights activist Talaga from Justice for Sisters. If you want to find out more, their website is www.justiceforsisters.wordpress.com and they used the acronym SOGI, which stands for Sexual Orientation, Gender Identity and Gender Expression. Um, we're next going to go to a song which is called, and excuse me if I pronounce this wrong, Salid Silbak, featuring Noor Dawish, Ya Ta... Talin. Um, it's a song which is a message that the Palestinian women used to pass on to inmates related to them while visiting them in Israeli occupation prisons. The women used to add the letter L between the letters of some words in order to make the meaning vague and prevent the wardens who understood Arabic from understanding those messages. <laughs> عيني للجبل يمول الموقدين النار بين لليمن يمن عيني للهنا يا روح يا طالي عين عيني للجبل يمول الموقدين النار بين لليمن يمن عيني للهنا يا روح ما بدي لكم خلعة ولا لا 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 بدي ملبوس بين لليامان يامان عين للهنا يا روح ما بدي من كل لكم خلعة ولا لا 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 بدي زنار بين لليامان يامان عين لل
Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children aged 3 and 4 can access 15 hours per week of free kinder. Kinder programs provide culturally safe places for children and families and are led by qualified teachers. Enroll for 2024. Speak with your preferred kinder service or local council today about how to register for a place. Koori kids shine at kindergarten. Find out more at vic.gov.au forward slash kinder. Authorised by the Victorian Government Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm, State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Hi there, it's Busy Homosexual and Community Darling, Dean R. Curie, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio on 855 AM. Keep Radical Radio alive. Community Radio is everything, and I love it. Every time I open my social media at the moment, it seems that another Palestinian journalist has been murdered. The Committee to Protect protect journalists reported three days ago that 64 media workers, 57 of them Palestinian, were believed to have been killed by Israeli troops since October 7th. But official Gazan figures put the figure even higher at 95 journalists, and there have been at least two more reported killed since that figure was released. A group of around 50 Victorian artists have come together to stage a protest about the silencing of Palestinian voices. Eloise Grills joins us now to tell us a bit about what's planned and why. Hi, Eloise. Thanks so much for making time this morning. 
Oh, thank you so much for having me. Um, could you tell me a little bit? Um, first of all, I should really say I'm a big fan of your work. I love the big, beautiful theory, female theory that you've got. And it's great to have somebody who was shortlisted for the Stella Prize on air with us today. But what we're here to talk about is the collaboration that's happening. So could you tell me a little bit about what's happening and why? It was all very mysterious when I was trying to line you up. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't really spoken about because the action happened this morning or, you know, started happening this morning. Um, so at about 5 a.m., um, 40 portraits of Kiljanis were plastered on the walls outside the ABC offices in Melbourne um, and about 40 artists and their friends have made these life-size artworks to honour our um, fallen peers in Gaza, um, murdered Palestinian journalists. And this is publicly... We've done this publicly at the ABC offices to shed light on the media silence um, on the Palestinian journalist deaths. So you mentioned um, a little bit about why the ABC, but could you expand on that a bit more? Why did you choose to do it outside the ABC offices? Well, because it is uh, the national uh, broadcaster um, and we feel that um, the representation on uh, this, uh, with this service in particular has been quite um, biased and there has been a lot of fear about around reporting on Palestine um, and a lot of pressure on journalists uh, to, you know, sort of toe the party line. And could you talk a little bit about the impact of um, on artists as well? Because I know that that was one of the um, motivating factors behind this as well. Yeah, so um, there's been, a, uh, I feel like with um, talking about Palestine, there's a lot of pressure to be, be quiet about it. Um, I know that a lot of people posting, even posting on Instagram, for instance, um, they sort of, they end up getting shadow banned, which is when your work um, is no longer sort of shared through the algorithm because you're sharing content that supports um, the Palestinian people. Um, and there's a lot of sort of pressure in these spaces to uh, not uh, speak out about this. Um, for instance, uh, there was an artist recently, I can't, my brain's not working at the moment, um, I think it's Mike Parr who was um, rejected from his, gallery that he's worked with for 30 years for creating an artwork about Palestine. Um, so there is a lot of this sort of pressure and deplatforming happening at the moment. And could you talk a little bit about funding as well? Are there any issues with funding connected with this? Um, well, yeah, a lot of um, funding bodies in Australia are um, linked to, uh, you know, people who are in support of Israel or people who are involved in designers' projects. Um, so it is very risky for artists to speak out about this because, um, you know, it, we, we need money to live, obviously, um, and there's lots of media organisations and um, funding bodies that, uh, for whatever reason, are, yeah, um, supportive of Israel and are part of this sort of... Um, it, it's supporting this war against Palestine. Now, you mentioned that there were over 50, uh, sorry, over 40 artists involved in this. Could you tell me a little bit about the people involved and the diversity of people who are there and um, how you all came together? So, yeah, it's a really diverse group of people. Um, I feel like a lot um, are remaining anonymous, but um, quite a few are not. 
Um, but I sort of got involved because a local friend, I live in Dalesford, um, on Jajawaran country, um, and a friend who uh, lives nearby to me told me about it and involved me. There's sort of a, um online group where we've sort of been discussing it. Um, so, yeah, a lot of um, different people and particularly, like, there's a few regional artists involved. Um, there's some Palestinian artists involved. Um, and, yeah, it's really incredible to see all the different artworks and I was quite emotional when I saw them all um, presented on the wall this morning. Could you tell me a little bit about what it looks like there and if you've had any reactions from people walking by? Um, so uh, I honestly just sort of gotten up, but, um, it, they have definitely been put, put up. Um, it's pretty impactful to see them all in a row, but I think soon after they were placed up, there were security from ABC sort of ripping them down, um, which is another kind of erasure that's going on. Sorry, that, that's awful. So people, so they've already been removed, uh, um, sort of within a couple of hours of being put up? I'm not sure if all of them have been removed, but certainly, like, they're in the process of removing them. Um, and were there... I understand that there were also um, some Jewish artists involved in it as well? Um, yes. I, I, the thing is, I'm not 100% sure, sure of all of the names of the artists, but I believe so, yes. Yeah. Um, and what was the impact that you were hoping to have? Is it just on the ABC or is there a wider um, impact as well that you're hoping to achieve with this? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're not just... It, it may look like we're just targeting the ABC, but that is just... It is because it is the national broadcaster. Hmm. Um, so it was about um, drawing attention um, to that and, uh, you know, we're not just thinking about the ABC, we're thinking about so many Australian news and art organisations who are still pressuring artists and journalists not to name the unfolding genocide. And are there any actions planned for the future? Um, for this particular group, not currently, but uh, there are plans to use it. Um, like every, almost all of the artists who have submitted their work um, have agreed that their artwork can be used for other purposes. So there may be further actions in that regard, but not anything organised at the moment. And what do you think is the role of art in a crisis such as this um, in general? Um, because I think that it does have a powerful um, role to play in helping us to process emotions around this. But what's your feelings on that topic? Yeah, I think um, art, and particularly the art involved in this, it really um, emphasises uh, what we've lost. Um, and I think, you know, seeing all of the portraits up in a row, I feel like hearing the numbers over and over again, you know, I, I look up the figures every day and now it's up to 97. Um, there's a recently um, killed uh, journalist called Adele Florob who died last night. Mm. Um, but, you know, putting faces names to these faces and seeing these faces and using our ability as artists to really um, portray, you know, what is happening, I think, because we can get very desensitised to it. So I think it is a really good way to um, engage people and to wake people up to what's going on. Can you tell me a bit about the artwork that you were personally involved in in contributing to this? 
Yes, of course. Um, so I um, did a portrait of Mohammed Nabil Azak, um, who's a, journal- a Palestinian journalist and social media manager for um, Al Quds TV, and he was killed in his Israeli airstrike on Shajaya in northern Gaza. Um, so, yeah, I don't know very much about this uh, man outside of this. Um, I've seen images of him. He looks like a very sort of um, friendly person. But, yeah, it's f- f- funny. Doing the artwork, um, I felt, I don't know, it did make me feel very emotional. Um, and to know that this person just, you know, by virtue of doing their job, reporting on the war, um, has lost their life. It's yeah, it really does bring it home, you know, to me as well through creating the artwork. Yeah, especially since it seems that journalists are actually being targeted um, to try and silence the stories of Palestinians um, and to make sure that those voices aren't getting out to us. I think that that's, it's really powerful to be able to use those images to help um, uncover that silence in a way. Um, yeah, could- Absolutely. And could you describe what your art, because we the we aren't actually able to see these the artworks themselves, could you describe what it actually looked like to some extent so that we can get an image in our head of what it was that we're missing out on due to this censorship, even here in Melbourne today? Uh, in general, the different artworks? Or just uh, mine yeah, yes, yours and in general would be great. Yeah, it's interesting because there was no brief. Um, well, the, the only brief was that we were to put the name of the journalist um, and the date on which they were murdered. Um, and it was emphasised that it was to write that they were murdered, not um, killed or any other sort of euphemism. Um, and it's interesting, a lot of um, symbology sort of is shared through the images. So there's um, a lot of um, images of peace, um, of olive trees, olive branches and also, you know, the significance of the olive tree to that region. Um, There is some really beautiful, it's all black and white, so some really incredible sort of graphic work. Some people have worked digitally, some people have worked in an analogue way. Um, There, yeah, there's just um, a real range in the kinds of styles. Um, Some are more sort of realistic, some are more... um, you know, uh, interpretive in the way that they've been done, but they're all just incredibly affecting. And were any photos taken of the artwork before it was removed? Yeah. And is there any way that we can have a look at these and access them online or something like that? Um, I believe that they are going to be on the um, Free Palestine Melbourne um, Instagram do you happen to know what that is so that our listeners could go and have a look at that? If not, uh, we'll try yeah. and get it by the end of the show. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's all sort of happening as we speak. So let me just... Um, I, I, actually, I've got it here. It's Free Palestine Melb is the Instagram yeah. handle. Yeah, so they're right. up, uh, available there. Um, so people can have a look at those now. Um, it's already up on the Instagram account, it looks like. Oh, is it? Okay, yep. cool. Um, Wonderful. <laughs> it must have happened while we were speaking. Fantastic. Um, is there anything else you'd like to tell us about why you think this is important and why you got involved? Um, no, I don't think so, but I think it's... Um, I think a lot of people are feeling really helpless about this at the moment and a lot of people are feeling like they, you know, 
they don't know what they can do. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, uh, paying attention to rallies that are going on, paying attention to various movements and, you know, something like this that used my skills was really useful. Um, so, yeah, there are a lot of these sort of events happening um, and, yeah, Free Palestine Melbourne is a particularly good uh, resource to have a look at for um, any actions that you wanted to be involved in. Brilliant. And I think that the next rally is happening on Sunday at the State Library. Um, yep. So I think that most of our listeners will be well aware of that coming up this weekend. Yep. Um, thank you very much, Eloise, for your time. And, oh, thank you um, so much. Yeah, and thank you for being involved in this and keep up the great work. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much, Sonia. It's really lovely to talk to you. Cheers. You too. That was Eloise Grills. Um, she is a Dalesford-based artist on Jaja Wurrung Country. Um, her latest book is called Big Beautiful Female Theory, and she was involved in an action with about 39, 40 other artists that took place outside the ABC offices this morning um, in Melbourne. Um, have a look at the Free Palestine Melb Instagram if you want to f see what happened and what w has already been taken down by security outside the ABC. We'll now go to an announcement. Let's make history. Motorcade for Palestine. We will be back bigger and louder at 12 p.m. on the 23rd of December. Meet opposite Faulkner Cemetery. Our calls will echo through the streets to show that Burn City stands and drives for Free Palestine. Join the Sit Intifada, Free Palestine Melbourne, Black People's Union, Renegade Solidarity Audio Force at 12 p.m. on the 23rd of December. Follow Renegade Solidarity Audio Force on Instagram for more information. Motorcade for Palestine, a 3CR supporter. You can try to avoid us, but it's pointless. You can never avoid the voices of the voiceless. CR is a community radio license holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music content, programs for children, and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in how 3CR operates. Copies of the codes are available from our website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. 
Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. And welcome back to Wednesday Breakfast. We're now just going to have a wrap-up of what's happening around Melbourne um, to help support the Palestinian cause. Absolutely. As Sonia already said, there's an upcoming Palestine rally that's been scheduled for this Sunday at 12pm, starting at the State Library of Victoria. And just also note that there has been another change to the rally that's happening the weekend after. So it has been changed to Saturday the 30th of December from... 12pm at the State Library of Victoria. It had reverted back from the Saturday to the Sunday, but it has reverted back to the Saturday. So just check out Free Palestine Melb for more details um, and just keep updated with them because there may be some changes. So you don't want to turn up to a rally and no one's there. Um, another really great event or another really great movement that you can get involved in is the Sit Intifada, which is happening at the Parliament Steps of Victoria, and that is being founded by EHUB and Mel- uh, Melbourne, excuse me, and members of the Palestinian community. And they sit at the Steps of Parliament House from 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. every day. And they have um, knitting circles there and other sort of craft. Um, involvement so get getting their support EHUB he's been sitting there for about four weeks or more mm. basically since everything kicked off and he's really sweet and really uh, communicative and a really great storyteller so get down there and support the Palestinian community and then on December the 23rd which is this Saturday well there's a motorcade for Palestine which is meeting opposite Faulkner Cemetery 12 p.m. this Saturday and that has been put on by Renegade Solidarity Audio Force. Uh, check out their Instagram for more information. So you can go to renegadesolidarity.audioforce. And for any other information that you need about events that are happening in relation to the Palestinian struggle and uh, their freedom for liberation and the ongoing genocide, head to apan.org.au and that's the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network for more information about what's happening around, especially around the state of Victoria, but also around Australia. So that's bringing it to a close for our last show of the year, our last live show for the whole of the summer period. Um, We listened today to the last interview was with Eloise Grills, uh, Dalesford-based, Jajawarung country-based um, artist who was involved in a collaboration with around 40 other artists which took place outside the ABC this morning to highlight the silencing of Palestinian voices through the murder of Palestinian journalists. Before her, we were listening to Talaga, who is a Malaysian trans rights activist, Malaysia being one of the being the second worst place in the world, according to the Global Trans Rights Index, to be trans. And she was talking, they were talking about a raid um, that took place where five trans women were arrested um, and humiliated um, at the start of December. Mm. Yeah, we had some, there were some really great interviews. Um, 
And earlier on, we, we heard Claudio Craig and Matt Grudnoff um, having a chat about income inequality. Um, Matt Grudnoff is the senior economist at the Australia Institute. Yeah, and we also heard from Grace Tan interviewing Chelsea Watego regarding the missing and murdered Indigenous women. That was a really interesting broadcast today. Thank you to Grace, Sonia and Michele. And thanks everyone for listening. You can listen back via our website 3cr.org.au slash Wednesday dash breakfast. The podcast will be up soon and any details and links from our interviews will be on the show notes. Yeah, cool. Thank you, Pippa. Um... So our summer break is starting on the 27th of December and to the 17th of January. So we'll have our first show back on the 24th um, with the, the new team. So um, I'm really excited to, to bring some more content um, in 2024. It's going to be a good year for us on radio. Yes. I'm looking forward to being back on air. Yeah, me too. Thanks for having me on this morning. It's been really awesome hanging out with you and I'm looking forward to what you will bring to 2024 with this wonderful new team. So thanks for being here. Yeah. And thanks for supporting us. For real. Go, Kelly. (laughs) So we're now going to go to an announcement and after that there will be a song by Camp Cove called Screaming Planet. Thanks for listening to Breakfast. See you in 2024. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.